0: You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Mike Morgan. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at verse 17, but uh, as you're turning there, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Mike. I am the student pastor here at Central, and uh, I get the privilege of being able to close out uh, this series that we've been walking through uh, with the Ten Commandments. Uh, So it's a a privilege to be able to be here with you this morning, and and, uh, to share a little bit with you uh, about myself. I try try to make sure that I I do that as often as I can, um, because you're so interested in me. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, uh, but I I am the second oldest of four kids. So uh, my parents, we had me and my older sister, who is two years older than me, uh, and then there's a gap of about eight years or so, uh, between the second two, because apparently after a few years, my parents were like, you know what, I don't think we nailed it with the first two. We're going to try again, see if we can, you know, perfect this a little bit. But uh, there was a long time in my life growing up where it was just me and my older sister. And we lived in a neighborhood that didn't have a ton of kids in it. We didn't have uh, a bunch of, of friends in the neighborhood. So really, our sole source of entertainment was one another, right? We we would, we would try, we would just, we would do crazy things. We would uh, take soap and water and pour it all over the trampoline, and this is before trampolines had the nets around them, and we would just see how long we can go without breaking something. And one day, I remember, I remember one day we were playing out in the yard, and we were playing. I, I don't know how we ended up playing with both of these things at the same time, but growing up, we had a really long driveway, and so we were playing with sidewalk chalk And we were playing with the hose, And I don't know how we got to both of those at the same time. But at at some point, my sister took this blue chalk. She goes, hey, I have an idea. And if you uh, have lived life long enough, you know that every good story starts with the phrase, I have an idea, right? And so she ground up the, as much chalk as she could, it seemed like, into the, the pavement. And then she took the hose and she mixed the water in there. And she's like, hey, come here. And, and as an obedient younger sibling, that's what you do. You obey, right? So I lean in and she gets a handful and she just rubs it all in my hair. And we just like, oh, this is hilarious. We are just having the best of time, right? And so my hair, of course, at this point is, is now blue. My hair is bright blue. And we're like, well, that's fun. Well, yeah, hey, I'll go inside. I'll take a shower. It'll wash out, all these different things. Well, what I learned was when I went to take a shower is that um, wet chalk does not come out of your hair like you would think it does. And for the, next, for the next three days, I had blue hair, and it did not come out. So if you're ever wondering, hey, I need a way to dye my hair, uh, and I can't, I don't have, I can't afford you know, the hair stuff or whatever, hey, you know what? Sidewalk chalk is a good alternative for you. And I bring that up. The reason I, I share that is because I learned something that day, is that seemingly innocent and insignificant things can oftentimes have far-reaching, unintended consequences. Right? That, when, uh, that day, this thing that was seemingly so innocent, I had no idea, was going to be haunting me for the next three days. And I bring that up because we're about to look at a, uh, we're going to kind of close out uh, our series in the Ten Commandments this morning, and we're going to be looking at the Tenth Commandment, and what we find is that it is often the case when we talk about covetousness, it's something that's so easily overlooked and something that is so easily dismissed or even seen as virtuous in our day and age today. But we neglect the fact that it oftentimes has far-reaching and unintended consequences. So if you would, if you have your Bible, please stand with me as we read from Exodus chapter 20. And in verse 17, God says to us this morning through his word, You shall not covet covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's i want to read that one more time you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's if you'd pray with me father we thank you for your word we thank you for the chance that we have to to study your word together this morning. God, I pray that you would give us hearts and ears that are receptive to what it is that you have for us this morning. God, we know that your word says that it will accomplish that which you have set for it to do. So Father, we ask that your word will accomplish your will in our hearts and in our lives this morning. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So we have made it through nine of the Ten Commandments, right? We have made it this far, nine of the Ten Commandments. We're on the Tenth Commandment, and one thing that's interesting as as you you really begin to look at this, what you find is that up to this point, all nine of the commandments are all focusing on outward things, right? Uh, All things that are done outwardly, murder, stealing, lying, worshiping other gods, dishonoring parents, you know, not honoring the Sabbath, all these things are things that are done outwardly of a person. When you do them, right, you know it. And when we get to the 10th commandment, we see something that's very interesting because the 10th commandment is different in the fact that it is this. It is strictly internal. Now, we know from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that ultimately all sin, all breaking of, of any of these commandments begins within the heart before it ever moves outwardly to the hands. Jesus makes this point very clear in Matthew 5. But what we're seeing with covetousness is that it is the one sin that, that begins inward and stays inward. And it's very interesting because it can be so difficult to identify in the lives of others and in our own lives. You can be in this room right now coveting, and the person next to you have no idea. So when we talk about covetousness, we have to, first of all, we have to understand, what are we talking about? Right? We talk about we should not covet. We need to understand what does the Bible seem to teach us on what coveting is. And as is, and as is often the case... When it comes to defining terms, one of the best ways to be able to define terms, especially in Scripture, is to not only see what it is, but to first and foremost, we've got to start with what it is not. So we're going to see two things this morning. The first thing is the reality of coveting. So when we talk about what coveting is. We see, okay, what coveting is not. And we've got to be very clear at the beginning. That coveting is not having desires. Okay? Coveting is not, having, is not simply just having desires. God is not forbidding you as a Christian. Please hear me. God is not forbidding you as a Christian from having desires and even having ambitions and goals. Okay? That God is not forbidding you from having that. This is not God condemning us for having wants. See, as creatures made in the image of God, we, we are, God has created us to have desires. God has created us to have desires. We should not shun these desires. It's not wrong to desire a spouse. Right? Genesis 2, God created Adam. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper fit for him. It is good for us to desire companionship. It's not wrong for us to desire children. It's not wrong for us to desire nice things and, and, and a nice house and a good paying job. And the reason that I have to make this point is because we, I have to understand, as Christians, when we, when we become Christians, we don't become passionless, right? We don't become ambitionless. Because what happens is oftentimes in our, in our efforts to seek to, to obey this commandment, what we end up doing is we fall more into the beliefs of Buddhism than we do Christianity. If you were to study Buddhism, what you see is that according to Buddhism, the essence of the human problem is desires. The essence of the human problem is desires. The four noble truths of Buddhism. The first one, all life is suffering. Very encouraging. The second point, suffering is caused by craving. Third point is that nirvana is reached and suffering is ended when we stop craving. So the fourth point, consequently, is that liberation and freedom is found in freedom from craving. Now, we need to understand that this is not what God calls us to be as Christians. We don't lose all of our desires when it comes to following Jesus. Quite the opposite is true, actually, is that when we come to a saving relationship with Christ, what you find is that now your desires and your wants have purpose, right? Now they have purpose. And what I have found in my own life is that when my desires have purpose, they're actually strengthened, not diminished. They're increased, not diminished. Weakened. So let me put your heart at ease. My goal this morning is not to get up here and say, hey, all those things you desire, you shouldn't desire them. That's not my goal this morning. But we also have to see that while coveting is not simply just desires, we would be remiss to, if we didn't acknowledge the fact that coveting does have, that desires is a major part of it, right? Desire, you can, here's the thing, you can desire without coveting, but you cannot covet without desires, right? So the question we have to ask then becomes this. When does desire go beyond that which God has prescribed and then fall into covetousness? Well, I think this is laid out perfectly in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We see Paul writing to a young Timothy. He's warning them, he's warning him about false teachers. This is a common theme in Paul's epistles. And he's telling them in verse 5 of chapter 6 that these false teachers, they essentially are teaching people that godliness is a means of gain. It's directly from uh, Galat- uh, first, sorry, 1 Timothy six five is that godliness is a means of gain essentially saying that these false teachers are telling people to pursue godliness so that they can get what they really want and that is the gain and status and all of the worldly things that they desire and once they get these things now they can be content thank God this isn't taught in churches today right so let's just understand clearly what, what's going on here There are people that have desires. They have desires and they seek to use God as a means to get what they want and thus be content. And Paul is going to contrast that false teaching with true teaching and say in verse 6, a very popular verse, this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So here essentially what Paul is doing is he is condemning teaching and he is condemning belief that contentment is found apart from God. He's condemning the idea that as a Christian my joy and my satisfaction comes apart from Christ. And he says this because in verse 6 according to Paul and according to scripture that to be content in God is the greatest gain. So if we want to define covetousness, we can define it simply as this. Covetousness is desiring something to the point that it causes you to lose your contentment in God. I'll say that one more time. Covetousness is desiring something to the point that it causes you to lose your contentment in God. You can also define it similarly like this. It is losing your contentment in God so that you start to seek it elsewhere. This is why in Colossians 3.5, Paul will actually say that covetousness is idolatry. And no, and no, not mixing words, that's a direct quote. He says, covetousness, which is idolatry. See, when you and I begin to desire things so much that our contentment in God is now in question. We have gone beyond that which God says is good. And we have fallen into that which God declares is evil. John Piper put it simply when he says this: when contentment in God decreases, covetousness increases. You see, covetousness is idolatry because what it does is that is the, the contentment and the satisfaction that a worshiper is meant to find in God and in God alone, they seek to find in something or someone else. So let's take this idea and apply it to the examples that we gave earlier: it is not a sin to desire a spouse. However, when a person cannot be content in God without one, there's a problem. Similarly, it is not a sin to desire children. However, first and foremost, we are called to find our fullest joy and contentment in who God is. And if we cannot be childless and content, we have fallen into covetousness and idolatry. It's not a sin to desire good health. But if we can't be unhealthy and joyful, we have a covetous spirit. Epicurus, a great philosopher, put it this way. He says, nothing is enough for the man to whom enough is too little. Nothing is enough for the man to whom enough is too little. And let's just be honest, right? We surra- We live in a culture that is surrounded by telling you and telling me that what we have isn't enough. All advertisement is this, hey, I know you have the phone and that this phone does exactly what that phone does, but this phone has an extra camera lens on it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I fall into this. And there's people a lot smarter than me who could tell me, well, this lens does this and this lens does this, but essentially it's the same phone. What, what We live in a culture that says, look, I know you have this, but that's not enough. That's not enough. But here's the problem, right? We're very good, if we're honest, we're very, very good at justifying ourselves, right? Every person in this room, including myself, you're probably thinking this, right? You're probably thinking, okay, well, look, I am content in God. Thank you very much, right? Pastor, hey. I know, hey, look, I, yes, I desire things, but I wouldn't say that I find my contentment in them. So here's what we need to do. We need to be able to to understand, how do I diagnose covetousness? I think one of the greatest gifts a Christian can have is the ability to be honest when evaluating themselves. Because we're so good at self-deceiving. So I'm going to give you three ways that we diagnose covetousness. I think it's important that before we even get into this, I want to be very clear that all of us, including myself on this platform, suffer with covetousness in some way. All of us. Now, that's not an excuse, but it's important for us to know that this this idea of covetousness is far more far-reaching and ingrained in who we are than we may realize. So, three ways that we can diagnose covetousness. The first one is when my desires, when my desires draw me away from God. Now, this should go without saying, right? But it's important for us to address. If your desire for something or someone causes you to sin or puts a strain on your relationship with God. That is covetousness. When the desires for the things of the world draw a person away from their relationship with God, no matter how short-term it may be, it is no longer a good desire and has fallen into covetousness. And, And I will tell you something this morning, that as a student pastor, I see this all the time. All the time. I've, I've been here at Central serving the student ministry uh, coming up on 10 years, and I have watched hundreds and hundreds of students come through this student ministry. And I will tell you this, that I have seen countless students sacrifice intimacy with God on the altar of sports and worldly success. And please hear me when I say this, that I don't, I I say this with as much love and grace that I have in my heart. And what I have found is that the true sad part is that oftentimes it is the covetousness of the parent that is manifesting itself in the life of the child. And this this cannot be. It should not be. I know this is a touchy subject and people are like, hey, you need to back up a little bit. But please understand that before this steps on your toes, it has to step on mine. As a parent and as parents, our sole job is to raise our children to know and to fear and to love God. That is it. That is all we have. That is our main task. And please know, like I said, I'm one of four kids. I know that you don't parent every kid the same. I know you don't parent every kid the same. Every, every child has different challenges and unique situations. But please understand something, that we are first and foremost, before we're called to make uh, successful athletes, before we're called to make successful people in business, we are first and foremost called to make disciples of our children. And if your child grows up to be a world-famous athlete or, a, or, or, or the leader of a Fortune 500 company, but they know nothing of God, please hear me, and I say this with all love and grace, you have failed in your job. Please hear me. If you desire for your child to be successful in sports or any other worldly venture, and it causes you to make decisions for them that negatively impact their walk with Christ, you are walking in direct disobedience to what God has commanded. And the reason is because you have a covetous heart. We'll move on from that one before I get yanked off the stage. (laughs) Number two, when my desires begin to feel like a right rather than a blessing. Let's just be honest for a moment, right? Every good thing that you have, every good thing that I have in my life is because God has graciously given it to us. It is not deserved. Even the things that you have worked hard for are not deserved. There are people who have worked equally as hard as you and have not gotten those things. Everything is a gift from God. James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen to verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, every good gift is from God, and he blesses us of his own will. No one, and please hear me, no one coerces God to give us anything. God does not give us things and bless us because he is obligated to. Quite the opposite. The only thing that we deserve from God is his wrath. God is not obligated to bless you or to bless me. But here's the beauty of it, is that he does it of his own kindness. Kindness. And let's, let's be honest, now we would never say this, we would never say this, but many of us have this approach when it comes to our prayer life. We have this idea that we get angry with God because we feel that there are things that we want, things that we have asked for, and he has not given them to us, and we get angry because we feel as if we deserve them. God, I have served in the church. I've never missed a Sunday. I've raised my kids to know you. I've, I've, I've done this for you, and I've done that for you. God, I've, I've led a, I went a whole school year leading a small group of sixth grade boys. God, there's got to be a reward for this. Right? God, why would you do this to me? Please understand me this morning that God is not obligated to bless us, but he does of his own will. And then the third way that we diagnose covetousness is this. When my desire dictates my worship. I don't know about you, but this can be a real struggle at times for me. It's going to be a struggle at times for many people. I desire something so badly that when I don't get it, it can be really hard for me to stand up and say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's really easy to sing to gratitude and, and lifting up the name of Jesus when it seems like all of the answers to our prayers are Yes. And everything's going great. But it can be a real struggle to worship God when it seems like he's not giving us the things that we want. It can be hard to worship when you get that diagnosis that you were fearing. It can be hard to worship when you're overlooked for that promotion that you've been praying to God that you would get. It can be hard to worship when your body seems to be failing you. It can be hard to worship when your kids are seemingly going off being crazy and breaking your heart. But one thing I want to encourage you too is that when we see these things, when when we're heartbroken, when God answers no or not yet, we're invited to take those sorrows to the feet of Jesus. Think about the beauty of that that even when we're angry with God, God invites us and say, tell me. Tell me. Scripture says that we cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. He loves us. Read the Psalms. What do we see? We see people suffering and and struggling, but what we see oftentimes, especially in the Psalms of David, is there is a resolution that no matter the circumstance, I will praise his name. We cannot allow our circumstances to dictate whether we worship God or not. I do not worship God strictly because of how he chooses to provide. And please hear me. Yes, I worship God for all he has done for me. I praise his name for the salvation that he has granted to me. I praise his name for all the blessings in my life. But please know that if he had never done a single thing for me, he would still be worthy of my worship all the same. Please know that if you can't praise him when his answer is no, then it's possible you aren't truly praising him when his answer is yes. Job 13.15, Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, much of what Job says, especially in the earlier parts of the book, he speaks out of ignorance. Right? Much of what Job says, Job is convinced at this point in the book that God is just seemingly against him. Now, from the reader's perspective, we know that ultimately it is Satan that is inflicting these hardships on Job. And while God is sovereign over it, we see that ultimately what Job's doing is Job is attributing these evil actions to him, to God, because he's ignorant. But what we see, though, in here is a beautiful trust in God that essentially what Job is saying is this, is that even if God were to do evil against me, I trust him to know that it's for a good reason. In 1942, C.S. Lewis published a book called *The Screwtape Letters*. If you've never read this book or you've never heard of this, you could buy it pretty much anywhere. But it's essentially it's a fictional book that documents letters exchanged between Screwtape, which is a who's a who's a an a senior level experienced demon, as he seeks to instruct a lesser experienced demon named Wormwood. And I want you to hear an excerpt from this book. Screwtape says, he, meaning God, God wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and yet still obeys. Essentially, what Screw Tape is saying here is this is that the work of demons is never more in danger than when a person obeys and worships God no matter the circumstance. And I want you to please hear me this morning. You cannot walk in that kind of experience with God. You cannot live in this kind of experience. You cannot maximize your effect for the kingdom of God as long as covetousness runs rampant in your heart. You cannot maximize taking the glory of God to the nations. You cannot maximize the impact you can have on your kids or on your family or on your friends or at your job as long as discontentment is the label of your life. If we want to uproot covetousness, here's the thing. We have to know, where does it come from? And I'm so glad you asked. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if I had not not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Notice that both Paul and Jesus identify that the source of covetousness is a sinful heart that dwells within the person. Essentially, it is the default experience of every human being. Everybody. And some of you are like, well, hey, I've been saved. I've been saved, I, I, I've been saved. And, and there's this heart exchange that we're going to talk about in just a second. Hey, I don't have that sinful. but here's the thing. You may have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and God has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, but here's the thing. We still live with a sinful flesh. And while I am led by, I I have the Holy Spirit living within me and these new desires and all these different things, but I still have the old desires of the sinful flesh. And they're constantly at war with one another. Galatians chapter 5. What does Galatians 5 say? Is that when we're we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but we have the sinful flesh, and that these two are opposed to one another to keep us from doing what we want to do. So the reason we struggle with covetousness is because either we have a dead and sin heart, or we still walk around with the sinful flesh. See, the source of coveting is ultimately a heart that is discontent with how God has chosen to display his goodness. And the reason that this is so widespread is that all of us, every person in this room and within the sound of my voice, was born with a rebellious and God-hating heart. This is all throughout the Bible. None of us are born neutrally, neutral or none of us are born naturally good all of us are born in rebellion and hatred towards God and it is only when God doesn't act that only he can do or he saves our soul that we're then able to now love him now we see now we begin to see why covetousness is so deadly you see we covet because we don't really believe that God is as good as he says he is because God if you were as good as you say you are you would do what I've asked you to do God, if you really were good, you would provide in the ways that I feel I need to be provided for. And now we begin to see the arrogance of this statement, don't we? Ultimately, the issue of covetousness boils down to this question God, why have you not blessed me like you have blessed other people? God, why have you not blessed me like you've blessed so and so? God, why have you not blessed me like you've blessed this person or that person? Now in order to answer this question we have to seek to understand why does God do what he, excuse me why does God do what he does. What is it that is God's purpose in all that he does which brings us to the last point here and that is the reason for provision. We see the reality of covenant but now we see the reason for provision. If there's one truth that I cling to every day in my Christian life it is what I'm about to share with you. It is why does God do what he does. Now please hear me that I'm a sinful and imperfect Person, my understand. I'm, I'm 29 years old. There are people in this room who have forgotten more than I will ever know. So I don't presume to be God, but all I can do is tell you what God has revealed through His Word about what drives Him, why He does what He does. John 10:10 10, 10 says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came. That they may have life and have it abundantly. Now what we're seeing is Jesus giving an incredibly profound statement here. He says this. He says that the reason that he has come is to provide an abundant life for his children. Right? An abundant life for his children. Romans 8. What does Paul say? That we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Here's the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that everything that God does, he does for your ultimate joy. Everything. Everything that God does, he does for your ultimate joy. Now, it's one thing for us to say this. It's another thing for us to truly believe it. Truly believe it. Do you believe that everything that God has brought about in your life is for your ultimate joy? Do you believe that if your life was to go any differently than it already has, that you would actually be settling for less joy rather than more? That even the difficulties in life are producing for you a crown of joy that you would not have if it were not for those difficult seasons. What's so interesting is that we think we know what will give us the most joy so often, don't we? But so often we're wrong. I'll tell you this, that if, if God would have given me all of the things that I asked for that I thought would give me joy, I would have never met my wife. I would have never had my beautiful daughter. I would never be at this church, and I guarantee you I would not be the Christian that I am today. God's wisdom is so beyond ours. God's wisdom is so. What does Scripture say? Isaiah fifty-five: that my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. God knit you together in your your mother's womb. And if there's anyone who intricately knows what will bring you the ultimate joy, it's God does not desire for you to be miserable. Do you believe that? God doesn't desire for you to be miserable. I've learned that the happiest marriages are the ones where both the husband and the wife are walking in step with God's design for their life. It's not because they have something you don't. Sometimes it may be. And that's a relationship with Jesus. But ultimately, it's when we walk in obedience to God's will, what we find is that that is the ultimate joy we could possibly have. God's laws are not so that we would be miserably obedient, but rather that we could be joyful and content in Him. Think about it. If God's desire for your life is to be totally satisfied in who He is, do you not think that He will provide the means for that to be the truth? If God wants you to be satisfied in Him, He's not going to intentionally make you miserable. This is where we have to set aside our wisdom. And trust in his goodness. Trust in his goodness. Now, when we consider desires that become covetousness, we need to think about what we're really doing. Given this truth, when we covet, we are settling for less than what God knows will actually bring us joy. We are willingly saying, God, I want less joy, not more. I know maybe you're in this room and maybe I've stepped on your toes several times and this is hit, it hits me hard too, right? Before you hear it, I gotta hear it, you know? Like I gotta write it out. I'm like, oh, I don't like that, you know? But it's the truth. And I know that you came in here thinking that that person or that thing that you're coveting will bring you joy that you so desperately seek. But please hear me, that I can promise you based on the authority of the word of God that it will not. This all sounds wonderful, and it is, but we need to understand something very important, and that is the second reason for God's provision, which I would say is ultimately the main reason for God's provision. And we see this in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, as I awkwardly try to flip to it. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 and 23. To give you a little bit of context, the people of Israel have been walking in direct disobedience to God. They have, they have fallen into idol worship. They have gone all over the place. They have profaned the name of God amongst the nations around them. They are, they are, they are, and they're about to be sent into Babylonian captivity, right? They are, they are off the rails. And God is about to institute the, the new covenant, or he's about to express to them what the new covenant is, this new covenant that Jesus institutes at the at the Last Supper, you remember? Right? So we're kinda kinda talking about, man, what, what is this? And this this incredible blessing, this incredible, beautiful truth that he's about to give them. But he prefaces that with this statement. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23 says this, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. Man, that we could spend all day on that. But for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What we see in Ezekiel 36 and really all throughout Scripture is that God's primary motivation in everything that he does is to display his glory among the nations. To, be max, to maximize his glory in the nations and in the life of his people. So we see that God acts, God does what he does for our ultimate joy, but he also does it for his greatest glory. And here's the crazy thing. That God chooses to glorify himself in such a way that it actually leads to the fullness of joy for his children. God have, could have chosen to glorify himself in any way he chose, but he chose to do it in the way that maximized our joy. What a kind Savior. Here's the thing. If you want to know the key, the key to satisfac- excuse me, satisfaction and contentment, the key to what does it look like to be totally satisfied in my life, to be totally content in what God is doing in me and through me, if you want the key, it is this. Find your highest pleasure in God's glory. Find your highest pleasure in God's glory. See, the reason we struggle to be content is because we don't value the glory of God. And this is so countercultural. This is not what the culture around us teaches. Our culture tells us that life is found in looking out for you. Life is found in getting what you can get. But what the gospel teaches us is that true life and true joy is found in dying to ourselves. So, man, I man, Mike, that sounds great, but like, man, I'm struggling. To, how, do I, how do I delight in God's glory when it's not what I personally may want? Well, this is where we get to the rest of Ezekiel 36, where God promises what it means. Essentially, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's not that I was baptized when I was a kid. It's not that I prayed a prayer. It's not that. It, it's that this, what God is about to explain, this has taken place. Verse 25 I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is what it means to be a Christian. Not that you in your own strength are going to church. Not that you have done all of these different things, but because God has replaced your heart of stone, given you a heart of flesh and has filled you with his Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to walk. And here's the thing, when God has done that, what he has done is this, is that he has given you a heart and a spirit that now longs for the thing that God desires. It gives you the thing that that now you desire what God desires. The sin that you once loved, you begin to hate. And the God that you once hated, you begin to love. And this doesn't happen, you know, that, yes, that heart exchange is in an instant, but this is something we should wrestle with for the rest of our lives. And I think this is beautifully demonstrated in an illustration by Charles Spurgeon. He describes a pig. Describes a pig that is faced with, with, two, with two choices, right? There's a gourmet meal, and then there's a pile of slop. He could choose whichever one. when they release the pig, the pig immediately races for the garbage and disregards the gourmet meal. Why? Because he's a pig. That's what pigs do. The nature of a pig is to root and wallow and indulge in filth. But now suppose that suddenly God, in in the only way that he can do, miraculously changed that pig and turned him into a man. In the midst of that pig wallowing in that filth, that man would immediately recognize what he's doing and vomit up the garbage that he had been indulging himself in, clean himself, be embarrassed, and clean himself off. And then the next day they would offer this man, who used to be a pig, the same choice. And every time, he's going to go to that gourmet meal. Why? Not because he's decided one day you know what this is what I want to do no it's because that his nature has changed and there are going to be moments several moments where this man who was a pig for most of his life may forget that he's not a pig anymore and just out of habit will go back to that filth but when he does he's disgusted by it and he realizes no I'm not a pig anymore He throws it up, he cleans himself off, and he goes back to the gourmet meal where he should be. And please hear me out. This is the experience of the Christian. Not that we are perfect. By no means. My family will tell you I'm not perfect. Our students will tell you I'm not perfect. But that God has exchanged our heart and given us a heart that longs for the gourmet meal rather than the filth that we have settled our whole lives for. And while we may not walk perfectly, when we stumble, we remember, you know what? Hey, for those who are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And some of you in this room, the reason you're so discontent is because that nature change has not happened. And I want to tell you that that invitation to be totally satisfied in all that God does and all who God is, that invitation is open to you this morning. Stop striving for the things that you strive for. Stop settling for less. When God has promised you heaven. What does this look like? It looks like just surrender. God, I I trust that your grace is enough. That you've done what I could not do. And if you're in this room and you're, you're like, hey, I have that relationship with Jesus, but I'm still struggling with contentment. I, I, had, I recently had a diagnosis, or I've recently this, or i recently that. I want you to understand, remember, we're not perfect. That's why God's grace is there. That's why the church is there. To remind us when we forget that we're no longer pigs. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth of the gospel that you have done what we could never do. That God, while I was wallowing in filth, seeking and desiring contentment and fulfillment, God, you reached into my mess, pulled me out, gave me a new heart. And God, for everyone in this room, including myself, when we struggle with covetousness, Father, help us to rest in the fact that you are good. And everything you do is for our good and for your glory. God, I thank you for this time. Father, if there's anyone in this room that does not have a saving relationship with you, God, I pray that you would pull on their heart. Don't let them leave this place the same way that they walked in. God, as we leave this place, we would do so bringing you honor and glory. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.